Greetings and welcome to the Men of Sorrows Finding Joy podcast. I am William Lloyd, a man of sorrow. Our podcast is committed to supporting and encouraging men to process their grief in order to heal and return to joyful living in the midst of great sadness. Today I sit down with Clint Hatton. Clint, his wife Amaryllis, and his two boys, Joel and Liam, lost their son and brother Gabriel in September of 2019. Out of the ashes of such tragedy, Clint founded Big, Bold, and Brave, which is a multifaceted ministry. Clint and his family vowed to live like Gabriel, big, bold, and brave. All the information and contact information are in the show notes. Without further delay, here is my conversation with Clint. Well, I'm here with Clint, and it, we've had a little talk before we've we've gone live on the air and i've enjoyed every second of it already um clint why don't you tell tell us a little bit i gave you a little introduction but i want you to tell your story um tell us what you're doing right now currently and then we'll get into gabriel's story and the rest of it okay that sounds good well first of all william thank you so much for having me on it's it's Mm -hmm. truly an honor uh especially to be on a show like this I just commend you. It takes a lot of courage to step out there and be willing to use your story to help other people. And you know, that's what I'm trying to do as well. So thank you so much for having me on. Uh, what I'm doing now, I actually just kind of made a big shift at the beginning of this year. I had been a pastor for 17 years, actually in full-time mm-hmm. ministry for 22. Uh, the first five years, I was in more of a support role for a ministry before I actually became a pastor. But I uh, laid that down in January, and now I'm just uh, very happily a part of a church and and serving the senior pastors from yeah. underneath and just kind of helping them when they need it and that kind of stuff. So I uh, so now I'm officially just, <laughs> if I could say it that way, an author, uh, personal development coach, speaker, and really want to spend the rest of my life uh, spreading the message of big bull brave, which I know we'll get into later, but that's mm-hmm. really primarily what I do. And my wife actually made a, uh, a shift as well. And she started painting a few years ago, which we may talk about that a little bit too, because that kind of fits into our story too. But um, so she's an artist now and doing some just really amazing art that involves her process with God, when she's creating it, she journals it. When she presents it to somebody, there's actually a name and a story behind it and scriptures in it and just Mm -hmm. does some really cool stuff. So uh, we both shifted gears this year and and pushed all the chips in and just going for it. That's, that's awesome. That was, was um, Amaryllis, right? Very good. Was her. (laughs) Very few get it right the first time. That was excellent. (laughs) Was it, was her. Um, decision to paint? Was that a way to process grief or just something that she always wanted to do? Yeah, that's a great question. That You know, it started before Gabriel passed away, um, mm-hmm. but not long. I mean, she's only been painting, I'm terrible with timelines, but probably about five years. It was a year or maybe two at the most before he passed away. Mm-hmm. But what did happen briefly is, you know, when, when he passed, especially in that early stage of grieving, you know, she kind of set it down and just didn't have the capacity to do that kind of thing. And it was probably a solid eight months before she picked up paint and brush again. Mm -hmm. But when she did, it actually was a painting 
that was tied to a um a word not a word but she had a friend the day a really dear friend there's no reason this story works because uh, it was the day after gabriel passed away she had this really dear friend call her and she didn't have, she wasn't asleep she didn't have a dream but she had you can call it a vision whatever you want to call it but she just saw this kind of you know movie or picture in her head and it was of our son gabriel in heaven meeting and talking with the angel Gabriel. And she described the scene. She described the colors, you know, all this stuff. And so the morning that she shared that with her, you know, obviously we share the same hope and faith and we know Mm -hmm. where they reside, right? We know where Liam is. We know where where Gabriel is. So it was comforting, but that's all that was. And then eight months later, when she decided she was going to paint again, she decided she was going to try and basically not paint the entire scene, but take something out of that scene and create it. And it ended up being these angel wings that are very thickly textured. So it's, it's not a flat painting. It's, it sticks out and it was amazing. And so I will, I would say that even though she had started to paint before that became a new catalyst towards her, as you know, just continued healing and, and just, Mm -hmm. you know, giving her something that bring brings her great joy actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that, and you said that the big, bold, brave, and we're going to put, you know, everything will be in the show notes. I want people to go to your, your website's really good and a lot of great resources there. Um, but big, bold, brave, the catalyst for that was the, the grief journey with Gabriel, with Gabriel's story. So why don't you, you want to talk, tell Gabriel's story. It's a great story. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Gabriel's story, you know, he was, um, excuse me. I would say he was one of those kids. I have three sons. So, you know, we love them all. They're all Mm -hmm. amazing. They're all brilliant in their own ways, but you know, anybody has more than one child, you know, they're just, they got their differences. And, and he early on had really strong communication skills for one. Um, I'm talking, you know, five, six years old, he could communicate well beyond, you know, most of the kids his age. And, that was great. <laughs> in some ways, you know, you're a proud dad. You're like, man, that's, yeah. until they're talking back at you at six, like they're already like 16 years old and know everything, you know? So that, that was the challenge. Cause he had a very strong personality um, in his really early years. It's funny. Cause he was, he was a really good kid. I mean, he's a good kid and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, a joy to be around, but he could also have these like epic, I mean, epic meltdowns. If, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you said no to something he really, <laughs> he really yeah. wanted or wanted to do, yeah. you know, so he was, you know, very emotional and, 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 you know, extroverted and, and just a, a really passionate kid, you know? Yeah. And so what ended up happening was, is that about eight, he flew in a small aircraft with his uncle Danny. And it just did something in him, William. I mean, the very first time he ever went up, he got off that plane and he just had the juice, man. He just, he was so into it and he declared, I'm going to become a pilot. And, you know, and we're like, okay, great. You know, so he's eight. You you expect maybe that's going to wane at some point, like next week, but Mm -hmm. he, (laughs) but he never, he never let go of that. And I think he went up one or two more times as well. And, but ultimately, you know, the the other thing about him before I get fully into his story is, is just he was he was always very determined and very adventurous. So if there was something that he wanted to do, 
it was pretty much a done deal. And that was whether it was school and classes, if he loved the class, it, it, getting an A was nothing for him. You know, um, he eventually ended up teaching himself to play guitar. He made uh, he he taught himself to photography, then eventually also got some help with some professionals that he was working with and became really a pretty amazing photographer. So he was a go-getter, just attack life. But at his freshman year of high school is when he got his first opportunity to actually start taking some real steps into becoming a licensed pilot. So two things happen in all of this, William, I want to point out once he got to his freshman year and actually started the process of becoming a pilot, there was a series of things that we really felt that were just all God um, and mm-hmm. just divine appointments and, and favor and, and even the resources to be able to do what he wanted to do. Because there, one of those things was we have here in McKinney where I live, which is just uh, North of Dallas we have in our school district, a four-year aviation program, educational track, which, you know, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of those out there. No, and we had just moved back a year or so before. So, and didn't even know that McKinney had that. So it was like this huge blessing and like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. You know? Yeah. And so that was, that was one thing that we felt like, you know, God did for us and for him specifically to chase his dream. The second piece was he joined this, uh, club called Tango 31 Aero Club. And what that is, is it's a it's a club that was formed by his mentor. His name is Kevin Lacey. And he created this club just for teenagers because he was the type of guy that had to work for everything. I guess, you know, his dad didn't really do a whole lot to help him in his career. And of mm-hmm. course, he ended up going into aviation. Uh, some of your listeners may know him, if they heard that name, they may be going, I wonder if he actually was the star of a show called Airplane Repo on the Discovery Channel that oh, some okay. that some may have seen. If you haven't, try to go find it. It's very interesting, and it's exactly what it sounds like. This dude literally spent a career of repoing everything you can think of from a really small plane to a seaplane in Alaska to a, mm-hmm. a multi-million dollar Learjet. I mean, all of the above. So he started this club for kids to give them an opportunity to start learning, think, you know, hands on about uh-huh. aviation. So his freshman and sophomore year, it was mostly just doing oil changes and they painted planes and, you know, worked on engines and wiring and all that kind of stuff. So great. It was awesome. And then by the time he was 16, that's at the stage where if they put in enough sweat equity, Kevin would arrange for them to be able to start flying. And so this is where another, what we felt like was huge blessing came in because anybody who's listening that knows anything about getting your private pilot's license, it's not a cheap affair, you know? And I know we both shared that we've pastored before. Um, We didn't get in that for the seven or eight figure income, right? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So so the, 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 the reality was we did not have the financial resources to help him get a pilot's license at that age you know there was mm-hmm. just no way we could have done it but kevin's club is only 50 bucks a year so nothing yeah and gabriel ended up actually earning a thousand dollar scholarship through a program that american airlines had here in dallas so he had that thousand bucks and then what kevin supplies for the kids that again have put in the sweat equity is he has a network of flight instructors that donate their time so it's to no cost to the kids. The fuel 
they can buy at wholesale. So they don't even get gouged there. Uh And so it was just this incredible opportunity. And so at 16, he actually soloed uh, for the first time, even before he got his driver's license. That's (laughs) amazing. Yeah, Yeah. it really was, you know? And so he, again, just, uh, he attacked life. He was a go-getter. He, this was his dream and Mm -hmm. he was living it, you know? And so ultimately the youngest you can be is 17 years old to apply for your actual uh, private pilot's license. So he studied for it, aced the test the first time, did his check ride and and flight and all the stuff that he needed to do and passed the first time. And and next thing you know, he was, he was a licensed pilot, you know, and he was living his dream. And so that, you know, went on for several months and just at that stage, you know, they're all not, age-wise, but new pilots are always just wanting to fly as much as they can, of course, because they need the hours. And so that's what he was doing. Then on September 23rd of 2019, he was getting hours. He had a friend that attended the University of Arkansas, which is several hours north of us. And so he flew her back to school to uh, get back to school quicker from a long weekend here in McKinney. And then on his return trip, he got about 20 minutes out of uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, and ran into an unexpected weather system over a little mountainous region and ended up flying into the mountain. Um, of course, it was also dark. That was part of what he was training for. He was training for night hours and lost his life living his dream. And so, you know, as you know, a devastating blow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, when, the, when he first heard of the crash, did you have some hope that there might be recovery. He might've gone past it. Yeah. Well, it was a very, very long night Mm -hmm. and we didn't know for a while if it was an actual crash, we Mm -hmm. got the call. What ultimately happened was, is uh, I was actually out running errands and I came into the house and I saw my wife on the phone. You know, we all know the look, you know, when we've been married with someone for a long time that, and just the tone of her voice. And I'm thinking what's going on. I realized she was talking to Kevin, his mentor, and of course, anytime one of the kids go up, you know, Kevin's got the, the I think it's an iPad, but it's a device that he tracks them, you know? Mm-hmm. And so at 8 PM, all we knew is that he disappeared off the radar. So we didn't know that necessarily meant a crash. Right. Um, there had been a report that someone had heard a plane that was maybe in trouble, but that was about it early on. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have to get into the weeds with this story, William, because it was really a, a long night of ebbs and flows and ups yeah. and downs. But ultimately, it was only after a couple hours that there were reports from the news media, who I'd also been tracking, that mm-hmm. were reported a crash. Mm-hmm. So at that point, we knew that something had happened for sure. Um, I had been on the phone ultimately three times throughout the night with the sheriff's department up in that region that was doing the search and rescue. They just kept telling me over and over, they had nothing to report. It was a rural area. Cell phone coverage is no good. We don't know how the news is getting their information, blah, blah, blah. And so we were kind of vacillating between the two, but about 3.30 AM is, well, let me back up for you because I think for our listeners in this show, it's going to be important too. You know, the whole night we, we prayed, we worshiped, mm-hmm. we read scriptures out loud. You know, we, we prayed prayers over his future destiny and, you know, did, did all the things that we yeah. know to do um, in hope that it was going to work out for us. And even at one point, 
about 1.30 in the morning is when the news actually reported a fatality. Mm-hmm. And that was a devastating moment. Uh, you know, I, I had to, I was faced with telling Amarils because I saw it on my phone. We wept, we, you know, just heaved in tears and went through that whole deal. And then later, not long after that, after I finally reached the sheriff's department again, they were saying, we cannot confirm that. So we're like, okay, you know, so at that point, you know, you're praying everything you're praying the craziest prayers you can think of. So we're praying Mm -hmm. that, you know, if he did die, that he'd be resurrected. I mean, you, you'll pray just about anything, but about three 30 is when they called us and we found out really what had been going on the whole time is that when they arrived on the scene and found him, which was about 11, everybody knew he was already gone, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have the coroner on site until very early in the morning. And it was just their policy to not release any information Mm -hmm. until he had stamped it basically. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And you talked about the initial heaving and crying and Mm -hmm. and praying and, and, and the, and the shock that our body goes through. Yeah. Um, and so then you had to, to pick up the pieces from there and, and in reading your book, it seems that you made a, a pretty quick decision of how you how you were going to move forward. And even like, I think from what I gathered from the book, God had prepared you for that family collaboration, for that family. You're a family unit. You move together. You work together. Yeah. From Amaryllis's um, accident, the wakeboard yeah. accident where she twisted and broke her leg. Yeah. You said that that kind of put some things in motion. So it seemed like there was a foundation there for your family. But, you know, you can't say it all in a book, but it seemed like you made a pretty quick decision that this was not going to sink you. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, it's the whole thing is still, you know, very surreal and, and, mm-hmm. and interesting in its own way. I I do think, as you stated, that there were some events that just over the course of just doing life, you know, I mean, life mm-hmm. punches us all in the face at different times. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes it's, you know, a, a punch you recover from really quickly. And other times it's a knockout punch that you got to wake up and get up and try to move on, you know? And so we had a lot of those smaller things. Uh, well, Amaryllis wouldn't call that one small. She had a spiral fracture of her femur is what we're talking about. Yeah. And so she couldn't even drive or really step on it for over five months, which changed life with three small children <laughs> to mm-hmm. say the least. But yes, it was, those were some of those things where we had had to work as a family that I think, you know, at least created a culture, if I could say it mm-hmm. that way of us Mm -hmm. sticking together when times got tough. And then, you know, you look at the fact that I was a pastor, you know, at that point, what, 14 years, whatever. Um, And so I think there was an advantage there, but the advantage, and I I, I always want to make this really clear, there was no advantage with pain. Right. So what I'm about to get into is not, not in the absence of tremendous pain, but where I feel like, you know, being a pastor all those years. And as you know, you know, roles of pastors can be very different. Mine mm-hmm. just happened to be years and years and years of coaching and mentoring a lot of family ministry, you know, dealt with a lot of uh, marriage ministry. Mostly we would get the crisis situations, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I had seen, observed and studied, you know, a lot of those things during the course of, of my career as a pastor. And so I was very self-aware 
of what the grieving process could possibly do in our family, including, you know, yes. end up in a divorce, end up with a shattered, you know, mm-hmm. splintered family life and all that. So I, so I had the understanding, the wisdom of that, if I could say it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, again, no advantage with the pain, but another thing that happened, and I described that in the book was I had a very strange experience that morning. You know, I was uh, back in those days, I used to walk a lot. Now I do other kinds of workouts, but I was just walking all the time. And that morning of Gabriel's accident, I was out for my, just a, just a normal Monday, William, just a normal Monday. Mm-hmm. And I'm out walking. And I, I remember I was walking by, we have a golf course that kind of weaves all around different uh, trails and different things the, the way I go on my walk around here. And it was one of those things where, again, he, you know, people can call it what you want. You can call it daydreaming, you can call it a vision, whatever. But basically, I was just walking along and like all of the scenery of what I was walking by just kind of disappeared. And I found myself in this uh, almost like a movie in my head. Right. And it was a very strange scene because all of a sudden I was back inside my house and I was running around very frantically. And all I knew in that was that I needed to run across the street and find my two of my neighbors. We have a very close knit neighborhood here and I need to find Angela and Margaret to take Joel, my middle son and Liam, my youngest son, who at that time were nine and 14 and take them because I had horrible news to give Amaryllis about Gabriel. And then Mm -hmm. as fast as that thing came, it was gone. You know, and at that time, because that was all I saw, that was all I saw. And you know, it, it wasn't tied to him flying a plane. You know, um, I mean, he was driving back in those days too. And honestly, I, I often had more fear I had to fight off with him driving a car than I did flying, just because mm-hmm. when he flew, he was. I mean, you people who went up with him knew you couldn't even talk to him. I mean, he was very yeah. intense, very focused in a car. He was like every other 16 year old, 17 year old kid, right. Yeah. Got the music blaring. He's got the yeah. seat back and, you know, yeah. probably grabbing his phone from time to time anyway. But that was all I saw. And so when you fast forward and got to that point where, when I need to tell Amaryllis, even I had totally forgotten about it, William, I just yeah. basically, I just prayed it away. There's another way to yeah. say it. I just yeah. thought, yeah, it's just fear trying to creep in. And, you know, every parent has had yeah. thoughts, you know? Yeah. And so, but ultimately when I had seen on my phone that they were reporting a single fatality that first time at one thirty, and I, and I needed mm-hmm. to tell her that's when I remembered that. Yeah. And so I, I just remember thinking at the time, like, what, what are you doing? God, is that, is that what that was all about? Mm-hmm. that you were somehow, and I still don't understand it, but yeah. you were somehow preparing me, you know, for having this conversation. And so you got all these things kind of working together. Right. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, um, you know, I, we had the conversation where we kind of described what that's like, you know, it's the shock and awe phase is what I call the first year, just extreme emotional. But I knew come seven thirty in the morning when my other boys were up and we needed to tell them cause they had no idea what was going on through the night. Mm-hmm. That's when I felt like I had already been given a very clear strategy yeah. um, from the Lord. And, and not that he spoke it to me necessarily. I think a lot of it just was, he just gave me this confidence in what I knew about those things, you know, the things I've learned over the years. 
So that's when I just I I, I gave the boy the boys the news. That part's kind of a blur, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. I don't remember exactly how I told them. I know I just kind of told them quickly. I didn't. Mm-hmm. It was already a very weird scene in the living room, including having their grandparents in the room, which was not normal. So right. I, I told them quickly. I didn't belabor, you know, telling them what happened. But then we just it took a little while because they were screaming and crying and, you know, the, what you would expect. But once they settled down, I looked at them. I said, boys, we have two choices. And those two choices are we can we can choose to let the tragedy, you know, the the tragic death, the fact that he was flying a plane and crashed and, you know, all the things that go with that. And then the pain that we were going to feel that we were already feeling, but we knew we would feel really forever in many ways. I'll make another statement on that here in a minute. But if we were constantly just focused on his death, that we would be trapped in our pain and that we would not live the lives we were intended to live. I just, I just knew that to be true. Yes. And and then the second thing, as I said, we have the other choices, we choose life. And that simply means he attacked life. He went for it. I mean, he was just so courageous when it came to just chasing his dreams. And so I feel like that's the only way we can actually honor his life is by doing the same. And so we made a commitment as a family that morning that we were going to live like Gabriel. And then the second piece of that was just the grieving process, which, you know, anybody who's gone through this uh, knows there's no formula. Um, there's no step-by-step, just do one, two, three. And so I just told them, listen, and by the way, I, I do want to point out once again, you know, for those that may be listening that have been through something like this, uh, I'm not in any way implying that our way was the right way. Uh, I'm just going to give you what, what, what we did and, mm-hmm. and, and it worked for us. So I think there's some wisdom in it, but you need to know, you know, that that's not the only way to grieve this thing out and it's different for everybody. But you know, what I said was, is we're, we're going to do this together. We're going to grieve together. And that's where I think that pattern of doing things as a family was helpful. Right. And just said, listen, we don't know, you know, what we're going to feel like day to day, week to week. Um, and for probably years to come, we're going to be angry at times. We're going to be very sad at times and need to cry. We're going to, you know, possibly fight depression and who knows how bad it mm-hmm. potentially could get. Um, mm-hmm. But the way we're going to fight it is we're going to do that openly together. We're not going to stop each other. And I really meant when I say each other, I meant all of us together. This wasn't a rule that Amaryllis and I, as the mother and father gave the boys but I was going to live as a different set, right? Like I wasn't, yes. gonna, you're, you need to show your emotions. You need to let me know when you're angry. We need to talk it through, but I'm not going to talk it through with anybody. I'm going to be this solo ranger and right. I'm going to, I'm going to hide right when I'm feeling it yeah. and then just come out and show you this big, strong dad. Right. Right. Um, that, that wasn't what this was about, you know? So, yeah. So that's how it's played out. You know, we've done that. Uh, it's been over three and a half years now, but we just, had all these different moments where we've asked each other how we're doing. We've allowed each other to cry when we need to cry, including myself. I've cried in front of my boys many times, but Mm -hmm. I, but I also talked through it too with them and just what I'm feeling. And, and then we always end up landing towards hope and the future. And, you know, and, and also, you know, as you know, the grieving process involves joy too, because 
there's also many, many times where, as mm-hmm. we remember him, we you know remember funny stories or something that he did or just his personality, and and we laugh and it brings us joy too. Yeah, yeah, that that it's real important. I I'm glad that you talked about that. This is um, I have one of one of the podcasts I did is what worked for me because I I'm you you are you're so sensitive because you know the pain that everybody's in. I'm so grateful for what God did for me. The the easiest way for me to describe it is he raised me from the dead. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, but you know, what you everyone grieves differently. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Wolfelt's work. He's yeah. he's kind of works with hospice, but he's kind of like a grief expert, <laughs> you know, right. not the greatest topic to be, but he's very um, compassion. He's written a lot of books. He has the center for loss, I think in Colorado, but he, he says that everybody grieves differently. There's no one way to do it. He did make a distinction that grief is what we're feeling inside and mourning is expressing that is the, is yeah. the outward expression. And, um, you mentioned that I think we might've been off, off the air when you mentioned it, but want to get into a little bit. Paul, when he tells us in in Thessalonians, everyone knows the passage, you know, we do not want you to mourn without without hope. Right. And he didn't say don't mourn. He didn't right. say because right. you said Christians can go to either extreme and say, oh, you know, I know where they are. We're going to celebrate their life. There's there's no sorrow. There's no sadness. Death from what I've experienced and see is still an enemy on this side of yeah, eternity. It, that's right. You know, and Paul does call it an enemy in, in Corinthians. And so we, you know, for the morning, the outward expression, there's, there's a lot of ways to do that. My friend made a joke that he was going to invest in Kleenex because all I did was cry. <laughs> but he said that it was so tedious sometimes talking with me on my, on the phone because at, when I first started, he didn't know whether I was laughing or crying. Yeah. You know, but you had mentioned um, a particular grief burst. That's what we, you know, they come in waves is when you received Gabriel's ashes. Yeah. And um, how it seemed like it was a different kind of grief burst because it, it was despair. You were starting to sink into depression. Yeah. Yeah. It was an assault. Yeah. Um what had happened is part, part of the, Oh gosh, I I'll just use the word challenge. It's a poor choice of words right now, but part of the challenge of the fact that he died the way he did was the NTSB takes over everything. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the coroner ends up needing to do, you know, what coroners do and testing for if they had, you know, any kind of system, you know, anything in his system chemically, if he had any kind of genetic disorder that could have happened, you know, all those different things. And so there's no promise initially how long it's going to take to receive the ashes. And because of the, the, just the sheer blunt trauma of the accident, that was our only option. So we just Mm -hmm. had to wait, you know, and so a few weeks had went by and, you know, of course, you know, it's an early, early, early phase of this whole deal. So we're just really trying to breathe and get through every day and, and just, you know, live life. And one day the doorbell rang and didn't think much about it. We get packages here pretty much almost every day, like a lot of people do now. 
And I, I looked out the security glass and saw the FedEx guy in his uniform. And, okay, no problem. Stepped out. I have a dog who goes nuts. So I just kind of stepped out and shut the door so she couldn't get out. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, just before I went to grab the little stylus thing where you sign for the package, I looked down and saw the box and it had the biohazard sticker that we're all familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then in pretty big, bold red letters, it said cremated remains. And William, I was stunned. You know, I mean, I mean, obviously we understood that it was coming someday, um, but I just wasn't expecting it that day. And so it just really caught me off guard. So ultimately, you know, I, I signed for it which was incredibly surreal and painful, you know, just to think, are you kidding me? This is, this is it. This is him. Or, you know, even though we know it's not him, but you know, Mm -hmm. that's, it's still a feeling you have to process. And so I I go in and we both work from home. So Emeralds was there and we're in the kitchen and I don't remember us really talking, uh, but we just unboxed it and, you know, you pull this thing out and there it is. And, and we just, crumbled into each other's arms and just wept for quite a while. Uh, Again, I don't even think we talked. It was, it was Mm -hmm. just pain. It was just pain. And at some point, you know, um, you eventually have to stop. Right. And so she went into our bedroom to, you know, get cleaned up and just kind of compose herself. And I was left in the kitchen. And so what happened, William was this, this, this is only a few weeks in, but I had not, been challenged yet with anything that felt remotely close to possibly getting depressed. I mean, pain, yes. Uh, Despair, resentment, bitterness, no. Mm -hmm. And as I'm sitting there, that's exactly what began to happen. And the way I describe it is, and this is very accurate, I felt it physically. Mm -hmm. This wasn't like something that started on the inside. I literally felt almost like a heavy blanket, this dark cloud coming over me. And as it came over me, I began to immediately feel very strongly, you know, anger, bitterness, resentment. First Mm -hmm. time I think at that point, not think the first time at that point um, that it was directed towards God. And, you know, why did you let this happen? That whole deal. And, mm-hmm. and as it came on, it was, it was a really weird deal because I felt it. And I really do still believe to this day that I was probably seconds away from going into just a pit mm-hmm. and who knows how long I would have been in that pit. Who knows what kind of an impact that would have had on my marriage, on my family, but I had a lucid moment and what I did was I just kind of reverted to what's been my lifestyle with my, you know, rhythm mm-hmm. with God. I just began to raise my hands, which, you know, when I worship, I sometimes raise my hands and I just kind of raise my hands and I just began to be grateful. And, you know, the first couple of words were mumbles You know, uh, (laughs) I can't say that I felt this tremendous conviction behind, you know, I'm, I'm grateful because, you know, as you know, this is a moment where I, there was, I was not grateful for what happened. Right. There's nothing to be grateful for when you lose your loved one. Right. As far Mm -hmm. as how they were lost. Um, But I just began to do that. and And I got stronger as I began to express more, you know, I would just thank God. I thank you so much for 
the opportunity to be Gabriel's dad. And I'm, I'm mm -hmm. grateful that he got an opportunity to live his dream. He was living his dream, you know? And so as I began to express gratitude, quite literally that dark cloud, just boom. Yeah. Very quickly just lifted off me. And again, it's really important to distinguish for those who are listening that maybe have experienced some things that are, you know, maybe similar in some way, not the pain, the pain did not go away. The pain, right. and here's the here's the way I say it, and and I and I just believe this to be true. The pain will always be there. We don't pray for the pain to go away because the pain represents the love we share with Gabriel, right. the love for right. our son. You know, mm -hmm. so that's not even a goal. So the pain was still there, but that bitterness, that resentment that was trying to drive me into a dark place of depression that could have mm -hmm. changed the landscape of everything. Uh, mm -hmm. It was, it was defeated in that moment. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's really, that's really powerful because you were having a, a the grief burst was, that was normal. That yeah. was expected that, yeah. that, you know, we're going to get those grief bursts, but there, there's spiritual attacks that come. I, I remember, um, I think it was the morning after or the two days after, um, and I, I blamed myself, you know, I, I should have done, you know, whatever it goes on. And my wife said she was in bed and she had a vision of me sitting in a chair and darkness surrounding me and wanting mm. to, wanting to wow. kill me, wanting to kill me. And it was all self-blame and, and condemnation. And, um, she had the vision and she got up. And she went out and I was sitting right in the chair that she saw and I was in despair. Wow. And she carries very bold. She lives big, bold and brave. She, <laughs> she said, come here. And she sat me down and she, she told me what she saw. And she said with tears in her eyes, I know you, I'm asking you to fight. I'm asking you mm. to fight those thoughts, do whatever you can. You're blaming yourself. And, you know, that was, that was a moment for me. The only, my constant prayer was Lord, I believe help me in my, in my unbelief. Yeah. You mentioned that you, you pastored a church and was with a youth ministry. And um, so we're very self-aware and I had officiated funerals and pointed to the right. future glory of where, you know, of eternal life and the hope that we have, but we don't, we're not mourning and grieving as pastors. We're mourning right. and grieving as dads. That's right. You know, it's, a, it's a different yeah. role. Exactly and um, right. that, that is, and I, and I like that you said that the, the joy, joy is different than happiness. Happiness, yeah. my friend says, is based on happenings, right? Happiness is. I agree. So, yeah. and, and joy is different. And for, for me, and, and you mentioned it too, that, you're very sensitive to say, listen, this is this is what God did for me. This is what worked for me. And it's different for everybody. I just I want people to see me on the other side of this smiling and, yeah. and having joy and having that peace that you, you that whole chapter on peace in your book was fantastic. And, and the gratitude, um, too, that you um Richard Rohr, and he's a, he's a, I don't know if you ever heard of any of his writings, but he talks a lot about suffering and, mm. and what God does with us and through our suffering. But he talked about 
a minute by minute attitude of gratitude, <laughs> the only thing that keeps us really from, from resentment. And, um, you know, that, that was pretty cool. One of the other things I just wanted to touch on, um, and a lighter note, but you did mention that the happy memories and all the, those things, you know, yeah. and you, you were on with Laura Deal. She talks about living in the light of your child's life rather than the shadow of their death. And, um, yeah. yeah, and you made a very quick decision to do that. And one of the memories you have is the wrench story. You <laughs> couldn't get in how, you know, yeah. the male ego and all that. And, uh, you know, the male ego is a, a, a terrible thing. <laughs> but, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that? It's kind of funny. It's a very self-serving story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, mentioned, I think I mentioned in the email, well, you know, when, you know, P John talks about how they ran to the tomb and John yeah. says, yeah, that, yeah, you yeah. know, that he got there first. Why does he right. mention that? Right. Picture yeah. them maybe, right? It was important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So just a tiny bit of backdrop so the story makes sense is just simply, you know, he was always very good uh, with his hands and mechanically and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, really from a very young age. I mean, we, <laughs> we'd come into his room and he'd be tearing apart a phone or a laptop or something, you know, just tearing stuff up just to see mm -hmm. how it works. And I remember the first couple of times he did that, I was like freaked out. I'm like, Oh my gosh, what did you just do? Yeah. But then he, he had the ability to put it back together. I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so that was really just the, you know, the nature yeah. of who he was. And so, you know, during those early years, 16 until, you know, he passed away just three months shy of his 18th birthday. So we had almost a two year stretch there as far as once he started flying. And so he was just so handy that it wasn't something that he really needed help from me. And and mm -hmm. I can do some things, but I wouldn't call myself, you know, a mechanic or super handy. But this one day he decided he was going to paint the brake calipers uh, on his wheels and so or on, on the brakes. So he <laughs> he was trying to use a, a hand wrench to remove a wheel. And so he comes into the house. And he's like, Hey dad, um, can you help me for a minute? Which is already strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, sure. What do you need? You know? So we go out there. He's like, I cannot even budge this bolt. I'm like, okay, well, so I'm thinking, you know, William, I know I'm, I'm, I'm fairly strong. I mean, I've, I've, keep myself in shape and I I'm fairly strong, but I'm thinking if you can't even budget, I'm not even sure if I'm going to be able to budget, you know? Yeah. And so I reached down and I grabbed it with my hands and I went to try and give it everything I had. And to my surprise, <laughs> it turned very easily. Yeah. And so I'm like, Hmm. And I didn't say anything. And so then I went to the next one, same thing. And so next, you know, I think there's five bolts on that wheel. Yeah. I took it off. I just hand him the wrench and he just looked at me in part disbelief and part disgust. <laughs> and he just said, thanks dad. I'm like, no problem. And yeah. I went inside and I was cracking up on the inside, you know, cause yeah. it was just one of those funny ego moments yeah. where I'm like, yeah. yeah, you still need me for some things, you know? Yeah. Right? <clears throat> but what really became hilarious is I went inside and, and uh, moments later he comes back in, he, he went to the next wheel and he's like, dad, I can't move any of them. <laughs> and I went out and took all four of them off very easily. And we had a, a small laugh about it. I laughed about it much more behind the scenes. And it was just a funny moment, but a special mm -hmm. one, you know, and, mm -hmm. and something I remember fondly. It just <laughs> one of those, one of those funny things you remember. Yeah. 
I love the picture. I love the picture. Um, it's one of the first ones you see on the big, brave, bold website. You know, um, Gabriel's sitting there and he has his aviator glasses on. His his hair is real. Like he's got yeah. a nice big, and he has the leather jacket and he's standing yeah. by the plane. I mean, he looks like a movie star in that picture. He's like, it's you know? pretty cool. Those yeah. were actually his senior photos is what yeah. that was. What and a, we and we have a friend who's actually a world-renowned photographer, so we're very fortunate. I mean, yeah, she's amazing. Her name is Mira Co. And that that fighter jacket is is actually a real fighter jacket. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a lot of relationships at the airport there, and one of them was a gentleman who was a fighter pilot back in. Uh, I, I believe it was Vietnam for him. To, mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that, but anyway, he was getting ready to do the photo shoot, and because they did it out at the airport. And he saw Gabriel and he's like, hey, do you want a real jacket? And sure enough, the crazy thing was this guy, you know, sometimes we get older and don't look yeah. exactly the same. He was a pretty rotund guy. Yeah. And Gabriel was thinking, I, your jacket, I'm going to be swallowed up in it. And he yeah. brought it out and it fit him perfectly. Wow. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that is a great life. Now you're two, you said the boys were um, 14 and 11. When, uh, 14 and nine. Yeah. 14. So, and nine. So is, um, are they Liam's the youngest, right? So Liam's the youngest. So Joel is now 18 and Liam is now 13. Is Joel getting ready to graduate high school? Yeah. He actually graduated early. He graduated in December. Mm-hmm. So he's uh, actually fully registered now to he's his dream. And this is the interesting parallel between he and Gabriel, very different, but very early on, mostly due to family influence. Uh, he wanted to attend, Oklahoma State University and he there's a whole backstory to that you know it's been a really rough go for him isn't that blasphemous yeah. for people from Texas <laughs> yeah no not when you're not from here <laughs> well and actually it's cra- it is crazy there yeah. are so many kids from here in North Texas that go to either one of the Oklahoma schools or oh, yeah. Arkansas Arkansas is another uh-huh. one University of Arkansas yeah we have tons of kids Partly because that depending on their situation, we have a legacy at Oklahoma State, which reduces mm-hmm. the cost by like half, but they can actually get in-state tuition. And so there's actually a lot yeah. that leave to go yeah, you know, one of yeah, one of those yeah, other sure. near bordering states. But yeah. anyway, so he's actually registered. We're doing a trip this weekend actually to uh, mm-hmm. go visit it. And he starts in the fall. All right. Great, great, great. Um, so I'm going to put all the information in the show notes. Um and how people can get in touch with you, how they can get your book. And um, the, you say you do some speaking engagements. Talk about that a little bit. Like do you go and do motivational. Do you, do you right. talk to bereaved parents or all the above? Yeah. What, yeah. what I, let me give a, just a really quick backdrop to big bull brave itself. So the morning of the accident, we were contacted by, an NBC affiliate here in Dallas that wanted to do an interview. And, you know, of course, as you know, when, when tragedy first hits, that's the last thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. And I actually said no initially, but what ended up happening was, is at the end of my call with uh, her name was Katie. She said, well, listen, she was, I want you to know I'm a believer too. So I'm very sensitive to, you know, your faith. And what you need to know is this is an assignment. So I have to do a story tonight. If I do it without you, all I'm really going to be able to do is report on his death. Mm-hmm. If you'll do it with me, then you can tell his story. 
and you can talk about his life. And so we had a family meeting after I hung up and decided to do it. So ultimately where Big Bull Brave came from is during that interview at some point, I said he lived big, bold, and brave. Now, I don't remember saying it, William, but but I said it. And then later on that night when we saw the actual uh, segment that she produced, which was about a three-minute story, and it was it was really beautifully done. You know, we were able to talk about our faith and who he was and all that stuff. But it's at the end of the broadcast, she said, Gabriel's parents want to encourage you to live like Gabriel, big, bold, and brave. So that's mm-hmm. where the phrase came from. And yeah. it it instantly was life to me, um, but it was really just a family mantra mm-hmm. for a couple of years. <laughs> you know, yeah. It was yeah. really just for us. It was our phrase just to occasionally remind ourselves of our commitment mm-hmm. that to honor his life, we've got to live. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. so, but ultimately a couple of years later, when I decided that I wanted to be courageous, you know, I thought about becoming a personal development coach for years mm-hmm. and just gave into all kinds of fear. Um, you know, most of my speaking had always been within the church and I'd wanted to try and reach people outside the church. And those were all just fears that I had given into, you know, I call mm-hmm. myself a coward in that part of my life, you know? Yeah. And so inspired by the way Gabriel lived, I decided, okay, big, bold, brave. That's the name of the company. I'm going to launch a company, which I did. And mm-hmm. then ultimately it was kind of a no brainer when I decided to write the book. But I wrote the book when I did, which was basically a little over a year ago now, as far as the writing process, Mm -hmm. because, you know, COVID hit three months after Gabriel passed away as well. Yeah. And so when you just look at, and this is not a political statement, I think this is just factual. I've found most, most people agree with what I'm about to say, no matter where you sat on the way things were handled is that fear has been unleashed on our planet in ways that we've never seen before. And it's really gone into every area of life that you can name, you know, Mm -hmm. between racial, racial issues have gone through the roof and now that we got gender issues and even, you know, what is even a gender, you know, we got all these different things where people are fearful and angry. And, and I just really felt like, you know, I had an opportunity to partly use our story to, not just encourage people that, you know, life does move forward. Again, I think you said it early on, we don't move on from a loved one, but you do need to live your life. You do need to move forward. And so I just felt like it was my opportunity to write the book, to help people, not just that have lost a loved one, but maybe have just lost hope or are just gripped by fear in their life. And they're unwilling to chase their dreams and take risks and, you know, some people spend their entire lives in careers that they hate and jobs that they can't stand. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's really more of a book about living your life because as we both know in a very intimate way, nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. You and I are not guaranteed tomorrow. Right. And so let's not sleepwalk through life and 20, 30, 40 years down the road, have all this regret because we were never even willing to try and chase a dream, you know? And so that's why I wrote the book. That's why it's called what it is. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I speak, whether it's, you know, in a small group, I've done stuff anywhere from I'll, I'll do a, a, you know, church setting to a corporate setting, small groups in front of, Mm -hmm. I had a talk not too long ago with just a bunch of um, freshmen (laughs) boys (laughs) in a club that they, they belong to. But it's really just to inspire 
inspire people. And I'm going to end with this. My tagline on my website is courageous humans, inspiring lives. Here's simply why I landed on that, what it means for me. You know, I, I do get people as I share my story and we haven't even gotten into my origin story. So, you know, there's a lot, yeah. I've had a layered life, you know, that people will say to me, you know, wow, your life is really inspiring. Well, I mean, I appreciate that. And I do, I really do. And, and of course I do want to live and ins- be an inspiration, mm-hmm. but for me, my goal, and this is what I do when I, when I speak and what I want people to gather from the book is that you need to be the same way. You mm-hmm. need to choose to be an inspiration, not just sit back and hear other people's stories and go, wow, they're really inspiring. Meanwhile, you're not willing to chase being an inspiration yourself. Right. Yeah. And I like in the book you point out, and I always tell my students this, we, we talk about success. And mm. you, I think you mentioned in a book, you're not talking about being famous or money or anything like that, meaning success, but you're doing your part. You're living your life, the, the, the role God has for you and the gifts and talents that he's given you to the fullest. And I always say that, you know, success isn't it's if you're contributing to society, you're loving yeah. others and you are, you yeah. are, you have joy and contentment with what exactly what you're doing in life. And, um, you know, that the, for listeners, um, Clint does, he goes into the fear factor, the fear and how our, our comes from our brain in detail in the book. And it's, it's helpful because it really is what we're thinking and believing is what fuels our emotions. I think you talked about, there's a big difference between being afraid that a bear is there. (laughs) When a bear is there, that's normal fear. But if you're afraid that a bear might be there, that's, that's the, that's the brain. And yeah, COVID came on the heels. I lost Liam in May of 2019. Right. And so then when, when COVID came, I don't know. I don't know if you have the same experience, but I remember telling my grief counselor, you know, I'm not afraid of any demon, devil, or antichrist after having lived through this, you know? That's right. And he said, listen, he goes, the demons and devils, when you get up in the morning, they're like, oh no, he's up. Yeah. (laughs) Because we are the light of the world. We have the light of Jesus Christ living in us and through us. And I really believe immediately when we enter into the phases of suffering, the Holy Spirit is immediately going to work to comfort us and to to counsel counsel us and to to sort things through. Um, One of the things I was, you know, told is, you know, this takes havoc on your body, soul, and spirit. Mm -hmm. So they said, Make sure you exercise. Make sure you eat right. Yep. Make sure you get sleep. Um, I think there's a similarity there. I, for my whole adult life, I had a good regiment of, of working out. And um, that was something I was easily, I, the gym's real close to my house. So that was something I was able to do on autopilot. And it yep. was in a lot of those yep. moments that the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart regarding some of the issues that that were troubling me. Um so you you have a normal you are you a gym goer you have something in your home yeah. that you do you mentioned that you walked what is your usual routine Yeah well our routine changed you know uh, all that yeah. <clears throat> everything you just said you know we we yeah. were already my wife and I work out together so we were already mm-hmm. becoming pretty fit when the mm-hmm. crash happened Yeah and we did take you know there was there was about 30 to maybe 60 days in there 
where we were not going to the gym. We were just yeah. trying to function and grieve and all those things. So, but um, we, we also held each other accountable to the fact that, okay, we know how important this is. We need to get to it. So mm-hmm. within a couple of months, we got back in. As a matter of fact, we didn't just get back into a routine. We jumped it up a notch. Yeah. And it's really important because what you just said, you know, one of the things that I want to point out, because we're talking about, you know, we're believers. And so we have this spiritual multiplier, right? We have this superpower in a sense that we have God mm-hmm. working with us. Yeah. But the way he created us, you can't ignore either. And there's a tremendous amount of data now with neuroscience and different types of brain science that lifting weights specifically, and you don't have to be, you know, a Hulk, you don't have to be trying to be Mr. Olympia, but just weight resistance training is one of the best things you can do for brain health, brain health, Wow, which is not something that we all necessarily knew years ago. We used to think it just was about looking good. So, you know, you have to recognize that we all either, (laughs) we all recognize it. We don't necessarily do it, but we know what we eat matters too, you Mm -hmm. know? So I think it's really important to address those two things to do your part to feed your body and to use your body in such a way as the Lord created it, you know, mm-hmm. to, to work optimally the best you can, the yeah. best you can. Obviously we all have different limitations and stuff. Right. But I think when you, when you embrace those two things together and then you add the faith factor, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're going to have a different experience, yeah. you know? And yeah. even if I could say this really quick too, we've mentioned here several times, that this is, nothing we've talked about is a formula per se. Right. Mm-hmm. And everybody grieves differently, but there is also an enormous amount of data out there, an enormous amount that anytime human beings under whatever the circumstances are, when you suppress emotions for an extended period of time, it has all kinds of ramifications in your body, in your, in your way of thinking and your belief system and all those things, it has an impact. So even though we're not talking about a one, two, three formula, we are talking about something that learning to express your emotions, getting people in your life that can help you walk through some things is really critical. If you bury them, you're going to have a miserable experience until you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And finally, uh, especially with child loss, you're you're it's still considered very young where you're at it'll be coming up on four years that's right um i i still will cry at the drop of a hat if whatever whatever it is that triggers it but i i there's healing in the tears it's good to cry there's you know there's healing in it do you experience that you still get those this week (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah absolutely i think you know again the the powerful lesson there is that there really is healing in the tears and we're not Mm going to get in the weeds on this, but there's actually been studies that have been done with the literal chemical compound makeup of tears. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they've actually discovered that the chemical makeup is different depending on what emotion triggered the tears. So for example, joys, you know, cause we sometimes we're joyful and we're crying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There was probably a, a whole bunch of Eagles fans crying because they were sad. And then Chiefs fans <laughs> are crying because they're happy. Right. Yeah. The chemical makeup of those tears look different. <laughs> yeah. And, but anyway, so that's what yeah. they've discovered though. And so we do know that, that crying and, and expressing your emotion in a healthy way for a period of time, because we get, we have to exchange that. Right. That's why mm-hmm. I love what you're doing because yeah. I can't stay in this place where I'm crying nonstop. I've got to move from experiencing that moment to now embracing joy again mm-hmm. and moving, moving forward, you know? Yeah. 
but yeah, yeah I experience it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I expect yeah. to always experience it. I, I think until the day I die, I'm going to have times where I think of him and I'm going to be moved to tears at times. Yeah. And other times I'm going to laugh, you know? Yeah. 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 You know, I wonder, did you ever, um, hear of T Captain Dale Black's testimony? No. Captain Dale Black was, he was, his story, he was a very young pilot as well. And, um, but he he died in a crash, but he they were able to bring him back. But he had a mm. near what they call a near death experience. Wow. And he said the way the angel brought him in to the was almost like they were flying in together and descending. Wow. And that like maybe God did that for a pilot. But Captain Dale Black, um, you know, he 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 wrote a book and he told this story and, and he weeps at just what Jesus has done for him. And, um, you know, but that, I, I thought about that as you, as you were talking, because he, he was, he was a young pilot. He's older now. His crash was I think in the seventies, back in the 1900s. Wow. Right. So, but, wow. <laughs> um, yeah. So anything, um, last, cause I'm going to put, um, your website and how to get, in touch with you and everything in the show notes, but anything you want to just leave everybody with, um, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I really do. I know this is, I wrote the book, but get the book. Uh, it's been mm -hmm. out long enough. Now I'm getting some amazing testimonies of yeah. just healing. It's brought and not for people that have just lost a loved one. It's, it's actually hitting people in many different ways. So, so please do get that. But, you know, I just, I just want to again, share the hope that, that William and I share is that, listen, the Lord is with you. And mm -hmm. I know it's hard. Grieving, grieving is hard. You know, losing someone is hard. We're not trying to sugarcoat it. We're not trying to make it sound like just suck it up. And, you know, my dad used to say back in the day, we were, I grew up old school. You probably did too. You know, you got, you got a cut or something, just rub dirt on it, you know, or right. tape and tape and aspirin to it was another one that we used to say. <laughs> the shake it off generation. Yeah. The shake it off generation. We're, we're not saying that, but we, what we are saying is, is there is life. There is hope. There is a future for you. And I would just encourage you today, especially if you've been struggling with that, that you reach out to someone, you know, it, it may not be your family. Maybe you don't have that option, but reach out to a friend, um, a coach, a pastor, you know, someone that you feel like you can talk to and, and make a decision, choose life, choose life. And there's so many resources out there that can help you do that. And I just want you to know that there's three things that I believe about every human being. And I believe it's, it's not just Clint's opinion. I think it's scriptural. One is that you were created to be courageous. God already put courage in you. There's tons of scriptures we could point to, to, to reaffirm that courage is in you to come through anything you'll ever face on this planet. The second thing I believe is that, you have a creative genius. You were created by a creative God and there's a creative yeah. genius in you. And what that means is you have the ability to tap into that and, and solve complex problems and bring things to this planet that only you uniquely bring. And then the third one is you're created to be compassionate. You know, we're all, we have within us the ability to be compassionate. And I think when you take your pain and we didn't talk about this, but I'm going to close with this. And when you give that pain a purpose, in other words, when you tell your pain where to go and you decide to use it to somehow bless others and help others, and that can look a million different ways, 
but there's a healing in that too. Mm -hmm. And there's actually science, brain science behind that, that compassion, expressing compassion actually does good inside of you and will Mm -hmm. change your life. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you. I want to thank you again for, for coming on and for sharing and um, you're welcome the, the the fellowship and i hope we keep in touch right and yeah. uh who knows maybe the lord has something down the road road for us but again my condolences to you and your family for your loss yeah um, it's yeah, me never too as well yeah. it, it's an enemy on this side but um, gabriel's life inspired all this and um yeah, I would recommend everyone get the book. It, it, it's been helping me and reinforced a lot of things. And I learned a lot of new things, too. So, um, Clint, thank you again. And, you know, blessings to you and your family. Thank you, William. I appreciate it.